right, so I have a question for you. Do we live in a Christian culture? I see a lot of shaking of heads. Like our nation, we all would agree, our nation was founded, it it had its genesis in Judeo-Christian values. And these principles and even Judeo-Christian morality. I think our culture has really passed the crossroads, hasn't it? I think we're we're past that point of saying, are we going to be a Christian culture or not? It's not a Christian culture, is it? So we have to just be really honest about that, right? And I could sit here and I could cite a bunch of statistics about how small the Christian church actually is in the United States. And it's a lot smaller than we probably think it is. Or I could talk about how the rate of giving to churches in America is on a steep decline, particularly among young people, those of us who are under the age of 30. Or I could talk about how those same young people are walking away from their Christian faith at a really high rate. But instead, I want you to think about, instead of thinking about statistics and big picture, I want you to think about your life. Think about your immediate neighbors, the people who live right around you. I want you to think about your co-workers, the ones who sit at the desks right around you and in your office. Think about people you rub shoulders with during the week at the store, at the gym, the Department of Motor Vehicles, wherever it is you go during the week. How many of those do you think have received the free gift of salvation? How many of those claim Jesus Christ as their Lord? And how many of them are endeavoring to follow him as a disciple? Two out of ten? One out of ten? One out of twenty? Folks, 5% does not a majority make, does it? 20% does not a majority make either. And I'm not talking about good people or nice people. There's lots of good and nice people. I'm not passing judgment on anybody for those. They're good qualities. But when we think about people who are truly following Jesus Christ and have said, I'm throwing my lot in with him, how many are there? Because that's what's going to determine whether a culture is Christian or not. And I think we can all agree we do not live in a Christian culture. So we need to be aware of that. This past week, I feel like there was an illustration brought to my mind. My wife, Christine, and I, we got to have a little getaway. We went to Los Angeles. Here's my Los Angelinos. You guys, back here, I went to L.A. Yeah, it's still the same as it always has been, right? (laughs) We went, ostensibly, we went and visited some friends, but I wanted to go to a Rockies game. You say, why didn't you go to the Rockies game down the street? Well, I want to go somewhere different. So we went to Los Angeles and went to the game. Now, for those of you who maybe, I know Brad said he doesn't like baseball, and there's a number who don't like baseball, and that's fine, but if you ever go to a game at Coors Field, you always notice, don't you, that there's a fair number of fans from the other team, right? Probably a number of us even sitting here are like, just like these guys, oh, we came from L.A. or we came from somewhere else and may have affinities for sport teams elsewhere. And so we show up to those games. You know, someone said, yeah, when Chicago Cubs play here, it's like half Cubs fans, half Rockies fans. And that's just the nature of Colorado's culture. But in Los Angeles, apparently it's not like that. <laughs> The stadium seats 50,000. Of course, it was a Thursday night game in Los Angeles, so it was maybe half full. Besides Christine and I, I saw one other person who was obviously a Rockies fan. So I'm in the concession line, and he had a purple jersey. I was like, hey, man, Rockies fan! 
right? We sat and these people behind us were like, whoa, are you guys Rockies fans? Like it was some amazing thing. But see, being a minority, I was connected to that one guy in the concession line. I was like, somebody else who shares my values. Right? Imagine if you moved somewhere crazy like Indonesia. I'm not saying Indonesians are crazy or anything like that, but that's kind of a crazy place. And you go out to one of the islands that's away from the, the big city, and you're out there, and you're an American. You aren't going to look like, you're not going to talk like, you're not going to be like basically everybody else you see. But what happens if you saw an American? You'd be like, America! And you'd start singing the Star Spangled Banner to each other. And you'd be really excited, right? And you'd be like, man, if you went there and to live there, you'd go, man, I, I might think about how can I connect with, maybe there are just a few other Americans and we can form an, an American group and, and get together and be strength in numbers. So in the same way as those two examples, I'd say, are you a Christian? If you are a Christian, call yourself a Christian, have you made Jesus your Lord? Are you endeavoring to follow him as a disciple? See, our culture doesn't share that value. Our culture isn't going to make it easy. It's not going to make it easy for you to be a Christian, for you to make Jesus your Lord. Culture is going to make it more difficult. And so we need to go for help. Where do we go to be around other people who share the values of a disciple of Christ? Well, the church, duh. Right? Church is where we go. And so we're asking that question, why church? It seems kind of obvious, but see, here's the deal. Being a Christian is not, it's not like being a sports fan. It's not like being a sports fan. We don't just put on a jersey and pull for our team. So what does it take? Well, the Bible gives us a clue. And I've got a verse here on the screen. It says this, Jesus, straight from the mouth of Jesus, he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. I read that verse, and that speaks to me of hardship, of trial, of ridicule, of sacrifice, of self-denial, and maybe even death. That's pretty challenging. You know what? I think even the most long-suffering of sports fans don't have to deal with that. Cleveland Browns fans, I don't think we have any here. See, in light of this, knowing that a Christian... Being someone who follows Christ, this is a big deal, isn't it? It's a lot bigger deal than a sports fan or even being an American. Why do we just treat it sometimes like we're sports fans? Yay, God. We put on that jersey on Sunday mornings and we go root for the team at church, but we go, hmm, I'm going to pick the team I want to cheer for. I'm going to pick the team I assign my allegiance to. Hmm, maybe a team that meets at a time I like and only lasts about an hour or two a week. Maybe a team that has a winning record and a lot of people who are sitting in the seats. Or maybe a team where I can get in and out quickly without even having to make those yucky relationships that we have to have. Or maybe a team that... Nothing actually depends on whether I'm there or not. 
Sometimes we treat it that way. And you know what? Churches, unfortunately, a lot of churches in America have gotten on board with this idea. They say, let's make it entertaining. People want entertainment? Let's make it entertaining. Let's appeal to the emotions. Let's make it easy so people can claim participation by putting a bumper sticker on their car. Let's be a profitable business. People want to treat it like a business? Let's make it a business. But my question is this, can I really carry my cross? Can I carry my cross and endure hardship and trial and ridicule and suffering and self-denial and maybe even death? Can I do that by putting a bumper sticker on my car? Can I really be a disciple in the same way I'm a fan of the Denver Broncos? And I am a fan of the Denver Broncos. And can a church really help us carry our crosses if it's going to focus more on a slick business than on difficult discipleship? And so I think this brings us back to what I said at the beginning about our question of the culture. What is the culture? And for both disciples and for churches, it's so easy for us to model what we do on the culture instead of on the Bible. See, the flow of culture, I think we all would agree, the flow of culture is toward individualism and selfishness, isn't it? Just think about it. You go out to just about anybody in the world, maybe ourselves included, where should I live? I'll live wherever I want to live. Where should I work? Well, I'll work wherever I want to work. Where should I engage? When should I engage with big life decisions like marriage and family? Well, I'm going to engage with them whenever I want to. That's where the culture takes us. And then we start to say, well, what kind of Christian should I be? I'll be whatever kind of Christian I want to be. I don't think that's what Christ is calling us to. And unfortunately, churches have adapted and catered to this. I love this quote from this author, Rod Dreher. He says, the churches, the the changes that have overtaken the West in modern times have revolutionized everything, even the church, which no longer forms souls, but caters to selves. I don't want to live this way. I think about what Jesus Christ has done for me and the free gift of salvation offered for me and this is be just I just don't want to live that way. Our church doesn't want to be that way. I want to obey Christ. I want to carry my cross. I don't want to go down the path of the culture. And what about you? What do you want to do? I'm guessing most of you are like me and you'd rather follow Christ. But it's hard, isn't it? It's hard in this culture that's going the other way. So that's where we are. And that's where we want to go as a church. We want to go not with the culture. We want to go the way Christ calls us to go. And so that's why we have this series. The series we're calling it, Why Church? So many people are asking that question. Maybe even some of us are asking that question. Why? Why church? Well, we pose to answer it here. We don't want to go with the culture. It's going the wrong direction. But... So many of us, even those of us who have made church our home and our calling, have probably absorbed a lot of ideas from this selfish, individualistic culture that we need to rethink. So in these four parts here, we're going to examine four aspects of why we should unite with a church community. And each week, my goal is that you're going to have at least one action point at the end of, hey, here's something I can do. 
Here's something I can do to accomplish what Christ has called me to do to carry my cross. So this week, we're going to be talking about strength in numbers. Well, I think we've got to go back to, and start with the term religion, right? I kind of get scared by that term religion, right? People are like, oh, you're religious. And I'm like, oh, that has some bad connotations. I always am like, well, I'm, what do you mean by that? Well, let's just go back to the root, right? We go back to Latin, religare, or maybe that's Italian. I don't know. That's the root. Religion comes from religare, which means to bind. Did you know that? I didn't know that. It was interesting to me. It means to bind. And so when we think about what is religion, when we go that way, we can kind of define it as a system of beliefs and practices that I bind myself to. Hey, there's those beliefs and practices. I'm going to bind myself to those. Why? So that I know who I am and what I should do. It's essentially what religion is, right? And so in this sense, everybody has a religion, don't they? Don't let those atheists fool you. They say, oh, I don't have a religion. Actually, you do have a religion. And, you know, the government and schools, they try to say, oh, well, we don't teach religion here. Well, actually, you are teaching a system of beliefs and practices that you want people to bind themselves to so they know who they are and what they should do. Even if it is the religion of do whatever you want, right? Culture tells us to be free, and it promotes that religion of do whatever you want. But isn't it easy to see how that's just going to unravel, how it's already unraveling society, and it's going to unravel it even further? Because at some point you have person A who says, I want to do what I want, and it's in contrast with person B who says, I want to do what I want. And they're at odds, and who's going to win? It's either going to be the person who shouts the loudest or the person who carries the biggest gun, right? We don't want to be there. And yet, even though we have this culture that's saying, do what you want to do, we look around and we see people trying to bind themselves to stuff, don't we? If you ask somebody, just go up to somebody, grocery store, somebody you meet on the street or on the bus or whatever, and say, tell me about yourself. They're going to tell you about what they've bound themselves to. Well, I'm, I'm part of that club, or I do this thing, or I'm part of the hiking world, or I'm part of this thing, or I go skiing, or I'm a Rockies fan, or whatever it is. Everyone's bound themselves to something. Why is that? It's because everybody understands there's strength in numbers. Right? Does anybody just go do CrossFit by themselves? No, I don't even really know CrossFit. I don't really understand that world. But apparently it's this thing, you all go together and you exercise together and it's all about I bound myself to this thing. That's great. Why? Because there's a strength and an accountability and a unity in numbers. And the Christian faith is, interestingly, just the same way. It's just the same way. So today we're going to go through some scripture that points out why and how this is true. So we're going to start in the Proverbs. Here's three verses from Proverbs 12.15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 19.20. Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Proverbs 24.6. By wise guidance you can wage your war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. 
So we see there's wisdom in counsel. But who is the source of all wisdom? Where does wisdom come from? Anybody? God. We know that from Romans 11, a number of other verses, and just intuitively, that would sort of be what makes God God, is he has all wisdom. So how does God give us his wisdom? How does he pass that on? He has it, we don't. How do we get his wisdom? There's a lot of ways. We ask for it. He gives it to us. But these verses speak to his wisdom coming to us through others. Right? One of the key ways God gives us his wisdom is through godly people. And see, the culture around us even understands, right, that wisdom is found in other people. I know know there's a number of moms here, and some of them are back in Sunday school, right? And if you're local in this community, you've probably gotten to be part of or heard about Highland Mommies. You heard of that? It's this, for those of you who don't know, you're going, what is this? It's this basically internet community is how I would describe it of moms who are sort of in this general area, in this neighborhood. They get together and it's really cool. It has all this, you know, I'm selling this thing. I'm buying this thing. I'm looking for this thing. But there's this thing. People ask some of the strangest questions of each other in this community. I'm not part of it. My wife is. And she relates this to me. It's some really strange like health issues and other things going on that are shared. I'm like, wow, it's like an internet community. Why are people doing this? Because they see that there's wisdom from other people. There's something to be gained from community. So we go back to Proverbs. God's wisdom can come to us through counselors. So who should we select? Who should we select as our counselors? All of us are walking around in the world and we go, who should we select? Who should be my counselor? Well, here's some criteria that just logically makes sense to me. If you follow Jesus Christ, you probably should pick someone who's an active disciple of Jesus. Right? You share sort of that basic thing. Corinthians, it talks about being unequally yoked. We don't want to do that. Okay, so select someone who's an active disciple of Jesus. Probably want someone who's experienced. Right? You may not ask one of our dear single brothers about parenting. They may not be experts at that, but that's okay. Right? You also want to be connected. You could ask one of them, and they might go, I don't know, but hey, I know some people who are in the parenting world, and I can connect you with them. Also looking for someone who's invested in me. Someone who cares about me, who knows me, who can sort of tailor their counsel to where I'm at. So that's what I think we should select as counselors. And where are we going to find them? Where are we going to find godly counselors? I know we can go out to internet communities and other places. Where are we going to find godly counselors? Are we going to find them on the street corner? That would be unusual, right? Are we going to find them in an internet community? Well, we might find them, but they probably won't be invested in me. I may not be active disciples of Jesus. Same with social circles. We might be bound by certain things together, but probably not by our faith. So where are we going to find people who meet all these qualities? The church, obviously. That's where we want to find people who do this, right? Active disciples with diverse life experience are connected to each other and invested in me. And we're all together in the church. I tried to think of other places that might meet all these criteria and... I can't really think of any. can't really think of any. So I think it also sort of begs that question, well, could you be a wise counselor too? 
You could. You could be a wise, godly counselor. If you're an active disciple of Jesus and you have some experience and you're connected and you're invested in others, then you have that opportunity to step into that role. So one aspect of this strength in numbers from the Proverbs is we find that godly wisdom is found in godly community. If we want to know what to do in our life, we want to have wisdom and figure out how to walk through the stuff, we want godly wisdom and where do we find it? God tells us one place we find it is in godly community. Second passage we'll look at is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 to 25. Peter says, As you come to him... As you come to Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what's the main thing to notice about these verses? I think the main thing is this. It's, it's all about many coming together to be one. You'll notice he doesn't say, hey, you are a living stone that doubles as a spiritual house. You will be a holy priest. Does he? He says, stones being built up as a house to be a priesthood. It's about coming together. And we understand this principle intuitively, don't we? Right? I had to put this picture. Sorry to you non-Broncos fans, but this is the example. You can have 11 guys running around the field, or you can put them all in jerseys and have them work together, and they're going to accomplish a lot more, aren't they? You bring it all together, there's something to be accomplished. Another example, it's the difference between a, a tornado that goes through a home and a tornado that goes through a lumber yard. The tornado that goes through the home has destroyed something precious and valuable, and it's a tragedy. The tornado that goes through the lumberyard just made a mess. Right? That house is the combination of all of those things stacked up in that lumberyard into something meaningful, something with value. Likewise, we should recognize that God will accomplish more through united people than through a set of disunited individuals. And see, I think this is one of those places where Christians, in my opinion, have erred in recent decades. We've decided that a church is really more of an organization than a spiritual house. If you go in this passage in 1 Peter 2 and you go down to verse 17, he gives a real clear instruction. He says, love the brotherhood. He says, love the brotherhood. He didn't say, love the organization. Love the church. Now, churches can be organizational and do great things, but I'm not sure that's really the purpose that we're called to. I think that's not really the purpose we're called to. We can, we can be really excited uh, about, oh, hey, my church did this really cool thing. And I'm really excited. I think our church does really cool things. But I love you guys. I love you guys. That's what matters. I want to love the brotherhood, not the organization. The purpose is to be a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, and to offer spiritual sacrifices together that are acceptable to God. So I think this 
Second, First Peter reveals to us this aspect of strength in numbers, which is there's a unique worship of God in a brotherhood community that can't be duplicated when we're just a bunch of individuals. Third passage, which is actually a lot of passages, and you probably got a hopefully you got a handout, a big full page handout with fifty nine verses on it, and you. I'm going to read every single one of those today. No, you could take those home and look at them. I know a lot of them say love one another. But if you go to the New Testament, these are all of the one another commands. These are the one another commands. And if you've been here before, you've heard me say, how can you obey any of these by yourself? You have to be with one another to obey all of these commands. So what's the point? Why did God give us these commands? Well, we go back to our our last message, the Sermon on the Mount. God gives us instructions to obey in the Bible, not to be a killjoy or to make us feel bad. He gives it so that we can thrive, so we can have a good life, so we can succeed. And so he's given us these instructions of how we should relate to one another so that we can thrive. We understand that maturity is not just from thinking about God or believing in God. It comes from interacting with disciples of Jesus Christ. You have to notice as well from these verses that they say to such and such to one another. It doesn't just say to others. It doesn't say love others serve others, encourage others. That's important. We should do that. But it's very specific to say one another, referring to those who are within the community, the brotherhood of believers. Loving others is important. Don't get me wrong. We've got to do that. We can't neglect loving everybody, both inside our church and outside our church. But there are certain commands we are given to obey that can only be obeyed within the church. And so God will bring about spiritual maturity in us individually through our commitment to and our investment in our spiritual community. That's another way there's a strength in numbers. So now we'll get to the fourth passage from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. The author says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I think there's a couple things to notice here. First thing is that commitment to church family requires sacrifice. I was hoping it was going to say it requires, I don't know, fun. Nope, it requires sacrifice. And again, that probably grates against us because our culture is going the opposite way towards individualism. So we're going against the current. He says, the author says, not neglecting. Not neglecting isn't just, oh, I didn't do it. It means ordering my life around this. How do we not neglect something? We make habits. We order our lives around it. And that means, oh, i got to say that dirty two-letter word, no. I have to say no to good things. I have to say no even to some Christian things. Because if I don't say no, I'm going to neglect what he's telling me not to neglect. 
commitment to the church family is essential. Ah, it is essential in a hostile culture. You know, I was at Dodger Stadium. It really wasn't that hostile. They were actually quite friendly and excited that there were some visitors there. Our culture is not excited that we're here. Our culture is not excited that we're here. And so, do you want to go face that alone or you want to be together? Let's be together. That's what I think we want to do. And interestingly enough, when this was written, it was also a, a culture that was hostile to Christian values. So we can see the parallel that runs between the time when Hebrews was written and, and our day today. Half-hearted bumper stickerism is not going to cut it. It's not going to cut it, guys. Commitment to church family also brings great blessing. Can I get an amen on that from anyone? Amen for me. I say that. I've seen material support. I've seen material blessing. The meeting of needs. My own needs. Others' needs. I've seen emotional and prayer support for people in the church in times of needs and challenge and loss and joy. I've seen relational support in the form of deep spiritual friendships. But it doesn't just happen by putting a bumper sticker on my car. It happens because I'm committed to what God is doing here. An analogy that has really helped me understand this in my life, that one of my pastors shared with me a number of years ago, and I'm going to share it with you again. If you've heard me talk, you've probably heard me talk about it before. But here it is. These are some cool-looking rocks, aren't they? You guys ever see those, those polished rocks? Like, ooh, they're really smooth. I don't know if you know where these come from. They don't just sort of appear in nature. The river doesn't actually make this happen. It takes effort. It takes work. Well, what does it take to get cool-looking polished rocks? It takes this thing called a rock tumbler. This is an example of one. It's not very big. They're usually very small. It's kind of this drum sort of thing. And so what you do is you get some rocks. You could go get any rocks. You could go get the rocks out of your landscaping bed, or you could go find them somewhere else, or whatever you do. And you put some rocks in this rock tumbler. And they're all sharp and jagged and dirty and, you know, kind of ordinary. You'd be like, oh, there's some ordinary-looking rocks. And we'll put them in here. And then you put in some grit. Some grit. Some sand or some gravel. And you put in some water. And you seal it up tight. And you put it on this thing. And you push start. And it doesn't run for five minutes. It doesn't run for five hours. It doesn't run for five days. It runs for weeks. And weeks. And you get going on down the road. And you get several weeks into it. And you stop. And you pull it out. And you wash the rocks off. You get the grit out of there. You put them back in. You put in some finer grit. You put in some more water. You put it back on there. And you let it run. For more weeks and weeks. And then you do it again with even finer grit. And finally, at some point, you pull it out and you go, Man, polished rocks. That's what I have. Now, I'm not really into geology. I'm not really a rock hound. But this makes sense to me because this is the church. God has designed us this way. You know what? We're all fallen. We're all sinful. We got junk and hurts and, and brokenness and sin and bad choices and laziness and all kinds of things in our life and we're just a bunch of jagged, dirty rocks. But God has designed the church to be the rock tumbler and we hop in, you get in, the Holy Spirit, the grit, and the water gets in there with you and around and around we go. 
You know, I bet it's not, if these rocks had feelings, I don't think they have feelings, but if the rocks had feelings, it's probably not super pleasant, is it? To get those jagged edges ground off of you, keep bumping into people and the sides of the walls, and ah, I keep hitting that same person, that same rock, it's driving me nuts. But if the rock gets out, it'll never be polished. And if we don't get in, we get out, there's refining that happens that we're going to miss out on. It's refining that we're going to miss out on. And so that's, I think, one of these, another aspect here of strength in numbers is that God has designed church community to be a rock tumbler. For us, jagged rocks. It's for building us up through the processes of refinement and sacrifice and selfless commitment. Through those processes, we get refined, and I've seen it happen in my own life, and I've seen it happen in a number of your lives and a number of other people. So that's where we want to go. And so today's action point, I told you we'd get an action point. Here's your action point today is this. Commit to the community of the church. Here's one. How about make this church your church family? Okay. Now, why this church? All right, We're not better than other churches. It's not a contest. I'm not trying to compare us. There's, there's great things happening in all these other places, but you're here. And if you're from a different church, I would encourage you, man, get into that rock tumbler. If you're not in that one, if you're not in one, get into ours. We'd love to have you. Come jump in with us. If God has led you here, the opportunity is here. And so some of you are new. It's like your first time walking in, you're like, whoa, that's heavy, man. They're asking me to like bind my life to stuff here, like get in a rock tumbler. Like that's pretty scary. I get it. It is. And so just sort of count yourself blessed. You kind of got to look behind the curtain at what church is really about. And you might go, man, that appeals to me. Maybe it doesn't appeal to you, but you might go, man, that really appeals to me. I really would like to be refined. I really would like to see godly counsel enter my life. Well, welcome aboard. We can always stop the rock tumbler and open it and you can jump in. The lid on, we'll keep going. That's what we do. You're invited to come join our family. If you want to talk to me more about this, I understand that there's decisions we made. That's great. I'd love to talk to you. I'm always open to that. Some of you are maybe not brand new, and you've maybe just been kind of hanging around the edges of our church and kind of like, I see this kind of rock tumbler spinning, and I don't know, what's the deal with that? And maybe you're just like, ah, I've really been influenced by that culture of individualism, and I've been running down that stream and just thinking it's all kind of about me and my decisions, and oh, I see maybe that the scripture is saying I shouldn't do that. Maybe you were one of those people, and man, I've been there in my life too, where I go, man, church is just kind of a commodity, or it's an entertainment, or it's an organization, or something. I go, rah, rah, and put my sticker on the car, and not there's anything wrong with stickers. Maybe we'll do stickers someday, and we'll all put them on our cars, but, because that's cool, or maybe it's not cool. I don't know. But if you thought, if you thought that way, I'd encourage you to maybe change your thinking. Understand these scriptures and go home and meditate on them and think about them and I think you come to understand that, man, maybe I should really get into that rock tumbler. And if you're at that place, I want to invite you. Join in. Like I said, there's always room in our rock tumbler for you. Get in with us. And yeah, it means sacrifice and it means commitment and it means saying no to stuff, but man, it means blessing. And I've been bouncing around in this rock tumbler, this church for 13 years and our church movement for 20 and I wouldn't trade it for anything. 
wouldn't trade it for anything. And then maybe there's others of you who are here today and maybe you've been in that rock tumbler, but you're kind of not right now. You Maybe you're here, but you're not really fully here. You're like, yeah, this is my church, but you know, my life has changed. Maybe some big things have happened in my life and they've changed and my circumstances are different and you haven't really adjusted or reaffirmed your, your buy-in to the brotherhood of believers and to the community. And you know what? That's okay. I understand that. I've got six kids. I'm married. I've gone through all those changes. I understand we have to sort of redo these things in our minds and our hearts as we go along. So think about it. If you find, I think you're in that place, what are some of the obstacles that stand in your way from making this your family, from committing to the community of the church? And you know what? There's people here who have faced that who would love to help you with it. Hey, the rock tumbler's warm. Come jump in. <laughs> it's kind of like the pool. And I know it's hard to say no to things. I know it's hard to say no to things. But isn't Christ's call to us more important than those good things? And then I think there's the rest of you who you have bought in. Right? I'm not the only rock rolling around in the tumbler. Right? There's many of you who are. And man, I just want to say thank you so much. Because this community depends on you being in the rock tumbler. The second thing I encourage you today is, if you are in that place, just resolve and say, Yes, Lord, I see this. I'm reminded of the good that's here and the reason why I jumped into this at the beginning. I'm reminded I resolved to continue. And the third thing I encourage you to do is look around you and look for others. Look for other jagged rocks who are maybe sitting on the sideline going, mm, I want to jump in and, and call them. Invite them to come jump into our family. Invite them to jump in. So that's where I'm going to leave it with you today here on Strength in Numbers. Now, you might be going, okay, so that's one step, but what are some other practices, some practical things I can really do here? Well, we're going to get to that. The next three weeks, we're going to talk about practical steps you can make to commit to your church community. So I hope you'll come back and join us and, and hear us out on that. I'll pray and close our time. Yeah, God, I, I thank you so much for your word and that you have not left us here without instructions for how to thrive in our lives. And God, as I think about church and I think back, I go, man... He you sent your son Jesus, and he defeated death, and he's standing there, and he's ready to ascend into heaven, and he could have formed any sort of organization or group or club that he wanted to form. But he formed the church. So God, I want to sit up and pay attention and say, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to engage in your community? Man, that's such a hard calling to take up my cross. I really think about that, Lord. It means going to my death. God, I don't want to do it alone. God, I don't want to see anybody else who's here today do it alone. God, there is such blessing in being refined and having strength in numbers. Help each one of us to grab a hold of that, to go after that in our lives. Lord, I thank you that you haven't left us here alone. God, I thank you for this group of believers, these disciples who are running after you have said, wow, it's hard and it hurts, but I'm going to get into the rock tumbler of the Firehouse Church. I thank you so much, God. We just look for your blessing on lives. Look for the good that you're going to accomplish in each one of us 
together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.